Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. This week, Bruce talked with Dr. Jean Kanakogi. Jean shared her mother Rusty's incredible story as the woman who brought women's judo to the Olympics, the ways her mother's resilience influenced her journey to become a U.S. federal agent, and how being a New Yorker during 9-11 inspired her to use communication and martial arts to improve law enforcement and heal others. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, I welcome Dr. Jean Kanakogi. She is a senior special agent for a U.S. government agency. Uh, she has a career spanning over 23 years of law enforcement. She is also an accomplished judoka and was a member of the U.S. national judo team, winning medals for the United States of America in many international competitions. She is a respected and recognized judo sensei, uh, and she also runs Project Rusty. Uh, I'll let her tell you about Project Rusty. Dr. Kanakogi, uh, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much for that powerful introduction. Tell us about Project Rusty. Well, Project Rusty was started on a promise. I promised my mom three things before she passed away in 2009. I promised to take care and look after my dad, who himself is a powerhouse, and uh, we'll talk about him later on. Uh, he's of samurai lineage. I promised I would finish my PhD, in which I did. And I also promised I was going to get her story out. And I was going to get her story out as in her voice, because she didn't want to alter history and have it go through a washing, if you may. She wanted her voice her story told, and she thought it was so important because in order to have forward movement, you have to know historically what happened. So you don't make those same mistakes. You make different mistakes, but you don't make those same mistakes and you continue to grow. You see, Rusty, she was not only my mother, Rusty Kanakogi, seventh degree black belt in judo, was the mother of women's judo. And why she's called the mother of women's judo, she, an ordinary person with a team that she surrounded herself with, good people, smart choices, got women's judo into the Olympics as a recognized sport. Now, could you imagine women's judo was not in the Olympics and so many people just told her no. So a lot of times when people are met with confrontation, they're told no and they accept it and they walk away and say, okay, well, I'll try something else. Rusty was determined. So you've written a book, uh, which essentially you're the co-author of your mother's memoir. Yes. And it's called Get Up and Fight. So the reason I'm the co-author is because the other co-author was my mother. Uh, we put this manuscript together in about 2005, 2006, just complete raw footage of her telling me her stories and me jotting them down, tightening them up, adding some memories in there, and really working on this gigantic like 600-page document. We were able to get it down to about 400 pages in the book, Get Up and Fight. And that includes a lot of really fantastic pictures and pictures that when you look at them, you'll think, wow, it's really a ride, not only through her life, but through history. 
and a lot of historical times and a lot of things that changed. And, and it's funny, Bruce, because I am who I am because of her. And she had these gigantic footsteps that I had to lead and follow and, and take the reins on. But this was my promise to get this book out. And the challenge was as an author, and I'm not an author by nature, I'm a federal law enforcement officer. Uh, the challenge was to write the book in her voice as if she was sitting there telling you her story. And it's very hard to do when you're working with somebody who's alive, but somebody who has passed over 10 years ago to still capture their voice and still convey the power and inspiration behind that voice was uh, monumental, but I did it. Uh, recently at a book signing, I told somebody who knew Rusty that I wrote it in her voice and his reaction was, oh, crap, <laughs> because she yelled at him when she was alive and she's yelling at him again through the book. But it's so embraced. It's so wonderful because a strong, powerful, ordinary woman is telling you her story. Now, uh, I should preface it that Billie Jean King wrote the forward to the book. Rusty was very good friends with Billie Jean King, and Billie Jean has her own book out, uh, All In, which is another powerhouse, uh, fantastic read. And Billie was kind enough to write the forward uh, because she loved Rusty. She believed in everything that Rusty did. Billie Jean King, another pioneer in uh, women's participation in professional sports. Yes, she opened the doors. Uh, she fought for equality as well. Uh, and her match against Bobby Riggs was monumental in opening the doors for so many women that were challenged uh, with discrimination in sports in, in which it's still going on. There has been progress and, and maybe baby steps, but we'll take it and keep fighting. And, and now going back into the 1950s, a little bit about Rusty, because knowing Rusty and her story will help people ground themselves and remember that, hey, this is me. An ordinary person can do things. You don't have to be somebody born with a cape and tights flying out a window to be able to make changes. You can be anybody you want to be as long as you're you and you're willing to have the guts to pay the price and put in the time, you can accomplish anything. So when did your mother start uh, studying judo? Amazingly. Okay. So 19, I guess in the 1950s, 1955, well, prior to that, Rusty was born in 1935. She grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn, and she grew up in a very tumultuous, challenging household. Her father was a gambler and a drinker, and uh, that's where the money went most of the time. And so if she if she uh, uh, was born in 1935 in Coney Island, of course, that was uh, in, the, in the midst of the Depression. Yes, the midst of the Depression. Her mother, my grandmother, worked in a candy store and make, making saltwater taffy and her her hand got mangled and to keep working, she had to take painkillers. And unfortunately, she became addicted to those painkillers. So this broken childhood home where the only, only communication that happened in the home was her parents yelling at each other, mostly in Yiddish and or just throwing things. My grandmother is uh, was from Odessa, Russia. And my grandfather, he was uh, Russian and German. They came across, they came through Ellis Island. Matter of fact, uh, I, I'll fast forward a little bit. My aunt Lee also is an immigrant and, and came across with her family, which was my grandmother's sister. And Lee is Lee Krasner Pollock, wife of Jackson Pollock. For families speaking Yiddish, they're, they're a Jewish family in Coney Island. Is that, is that correct? 
That's correct. So that was strike one against her because it was predominantly an Italian neighborhood. So she was the Jewish girl, the tough Jewish girl growing up. And my my grandparents didn't have time to babysit her. So she roamed around Coney Island. Now, those of you that don't know Coney Island, it's a big boardwalk with a Ferris wheel and different shows and different games. Uh, and it's right on the beach. And sadly, her babysitters were members of what they called the freak show back then. So her two best friends and babysitters growing up were Milo the Mule-Faced Boy and the Pinhead Sisters. And these poor people were just a little bit different and they were exploited for looking different, but they had hearts of gold. They were performers and she would show up at the performance regularly because she lived there and they just took her in like family. And one thing that she realized innately is that you shouldn't treat people just for looking differently because they made her feel loved. They made her feel like family. And she knew it was wrong to be made fun of just for being different. So she started developing her character early on through growing up. Then she became, she had all this energy and she became a street gang leader for a female gang called the Apaches. Now, before we start thinking gang like we know it today, back then, if you think about the movie Grease, she had the chartreuse jacket, the pedal pushers, and and they were the tough girls. So it's not like a gang like we know it in modern age, but Coney Island street gangs of, if you think of the movie, The Warriors or, or the TV or the movie Grease, how they used to dress. Uh, And they would get into gang fights with other girls. And it it was more of her, her pack that she would run with. But she also knew that this wasn't the life, but she had so much energy. She loved to work out. A little bit fast forward, she got in trouble with the law and she ended up at the Women's House of Detention. And she knew this is not the path that she wants to go. Uh-oh. And what year is this that she get, ends up in the Women's House of Detention? I'd say early 50s. Uh, she's, she's, she's running with a crowd that ends her off in the Women's House of Detention. When does she learn judo? That, well, she decides to get married because uh, she met a guy who early on at a very young age, she got married. But unfortunately, she married somebody like her father. She ended up going to Al-Anon, helping, trying to support him, thinking he was going to AA meetings, but he was actually going to the bar. But she was going to Al-Anon to figure out how to help him. At Al-Anon, she met a friend and he looked like he exercised and worked out. So Rusty asked, well, what did you do? What, what kind of exercise do you do? And he said, well, he lifts weights and he does judo. So she said, judo, what's that? And he explained that this is a Japanese sport. Now this is during the World War II times. And she's like, well, why would you want to learn a Japanese sport? And he said, here, let me show you. So he picked her up on his hip in a hip throw as if she was a piece of paper. Now Rusty was five foot nine, almost 200 pounds of muscle. And he just lifted her like she was absolutely a a feather. So she said, that's it. I forgive Japan for everything. I need to learn judo. Where, where is this happening? Where, where do you do this? And uh, he said, well, I do it at the Brooklyn YMCA and in Prospect Park. So come to the judo class with me. And that's what she did. She went to the judo class and she told the instructor, I would like to learn judo. The instructor immediately said, no, no women allowed. She kept on showing up and showing up. She was persistent. She was hungry to learn this this sport of judo. She figures this is where she can channel her energy. And she was really, really interested. So she shows up. Finally, he said, okay, fine. You can train with us and you can learn judo, but you don't get a judo gate. You have to wear old army fatigues and change when you get here. Okay. There was no ladies room because it was the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. And why would they have a woman's room? So she had to change into a broom closet. 
Subsequently, she did end up getting her judo gi and it's the white uniform and there's so much pride when you put that on. As in any uniform, there's so much pride because you're representing more than just you. Finally, she got the, there was so much camaraderie with her teammates and the training. Her team was entered in a judo tournament, the New York State Championships in 1959. You know, Rusty brought her judo gi with her everywhere. So she brought her gi with her so that she can put it on and help the guys warm up before they fight. Because when you warm up, you do form practice. And as she's on the mat in 1959, warming up with the guys, you hear a yell from the other side of the mat. One of her teammates was warming up and and twisted his knee and he was injured. So her coach said, Rusty, I'm going to put you in in his place. Don't make a scene. Don't draw attention. Just pull an even score. In her head, she's thinking, well, that's not fair. Why should I just keep on, stay under the wire? Why should I just have an even score? I train with these guys. I train just as hard. Why shouldn't I be able to compete? But you know what? Having this opportunity just to compete, I'll do it. So she agreed. Her opponent was this big guy who looked like he just wanted to eat steel. She, she and him entered onto the mat and respectfully bowed onto the mat, bowed to the referee. And uh, the referee said, begin. Right away, they started what they call grip fighting. And grip fighting is really to get your grip. It, it's almost a, um, it, it's a battle just to get your grip because once you get your grip on another person's judo gi, you can establish a position of dominance and maybe you can lead. So you really want to get a strong grip. So that almost was like a fist fight. Here they're trying to get their hands inside the other person's hands or around the other person's hands to get, uh, get a hold of the lapel of the gi. Yes, yes. And I should add the caveat, before Rusty entered onto the mat, uh, and when she was told she was going to compete, she went and she took an ace bandage and wrapped her chest just to make sure that she wasn't very well endowed because she was very athletic at the time, but just to make sure as she had short hair to begin with, and she had a very chiseled face. So just to make sure she was even more androgynous, she she wrapped her chest with an ace bandage. So now they're grip fighting. And she gets her grip. He gets his grip. Uh, he comes in on a throw. She holds back. They fall to the mat. They stand back up for f- to fight again. The referee, of course, in control of this. Next thing you know, she's hearing in her head, go rusty, go rusty. And she doesn't know if it's her teammates yelling this or if it's her yelling this. Rusty was 100% in the belief of full commitment. If you want something, you have to fully commit. She fully committed into her technique and her throw. And she threw this guy so hard, almost through the mat. And she got what they call a nippon, which is a full point score, meaning that you threw the person with clean, good technique and you completely won the match. It's like hitting a home run in baseball or a touchdown in football if that was the one determinant factor of winning a match. Uh, she bowed off the mat. She was just inside. She didn't want to jump up and down, but inside she was jumping up and down. And the, uh, tournament director put the medal around her neck and her teammate's neck and they won the trophy. And she's thinking, wow, finally, I'm actually getting a medal instead of a citation for fighting. This is amazing. So here she's 24 years old. So she has been in the women's house of detention more than once. Yes. So she's been in the house of detention more than once. 
But here, through her judo practice, she finds herself throwing this guy onto the mat so hard that she gets an epon, a point, and she's realizing, hey, wait a minute, I get to fight here and I get I get celebrated instead of getting put in the house of detention. Yes. So she's walking to her car. I mean, you she was pretty much walking on air. And the tournament director calls her over, says, excuse me, um, I'd like a word. First, she thought, you know, Rusty's thinking was very different. First, she, she thought, oh, wow, maybe he's going to compliment me on my technique. And which is unlike what most people think, because when most when people say, oh, I'd like a word, people right away go to the negative. Rusty wasn't that person to right away go to the negative. But then she did. And she said, oh boy, what's going on? The tournament director in a very accusatory tone said, are you a girl? He wouldn't even dignify her by saying, are you a woman? Are you a girl? And she said to him, I am a woman. Uh, He said, well, women cannot compete. We'll need that medal back or your team will forfeit the trophy. So the team said, she went back to her coach and told him, and he said, fine, well, everybody will give our medals back. We don't need this. So not only they, they changed from initially not wanting Rusty in the class, but now embracing to support giving their medals back. But she said, no, that's not fair. Uh, They won their medals fair and square, just like I won my medal fair and square. She decided she will give her medal back. When she took that medal off from around her neck and handed it to the tournament director, she had every emotion stirring inside from anger to sadness. And she just wanted to cry, but she wouldn't let them see any emotion. They didn't didn't deserve that from her. But that was the pivotal point where she said, no woman will ever have to suffer this indignity ever again. Not on my watch. Women's judo needs equality. And this is BS. I'm going to change all that. I'm going to make this happen. One of the great things about a fighting art is uh, that, you know, when push comes to shove, if you're a fighter, the proof is in the the fight. It is. So after that, she spoke with her teacher, her sensei, and she wanted to learn even more. She wanted to understand the philosophies. She really wanted to be immersed. They came up with this idea, let's get you to Japan to go train at the Kodokan. Yeah, because if you're really serious, right, you got to go train uh, uh, in, in the birthplace of the art. Yes. So in the 60, early 60s, I think it was 61, they all pitched in money, bought her a suitcase, got her a ticket, made a connection so that she can stay with someone in Japan and sent this five foot nine redheaded woman who didn't speak a lick of Japanese besides the names of the judo throws and how to count to Japan. So could you imagine in 1961, 1962, going to Japan, not knowing a darn thing? She gets to Japan and uh, the stories, there are some stories of her antics running around Japan trying to find the Kodokan in the book. And, and they're quite funny. She gets to the Kodokan and they put her in the, on the woman's side, because at that time, women were not doing combative judo at the Kodokan. They were doing kata. And she was very grateful for learning the kata. Uh, and she trained with Miss Fukuda, Keiko Fukuda, who is the mother of uh, women's kata, who was just amazing. And they became good friends. 
And kata, uh, for people who don't know, kata are prearranged series of movements organized uh, so that you can learn techniques in a, in a sequence. Yes, and in a sequence, and really executing the fine points of the judo techniques and an understanding. The kata is a basic foundation that you need to know. And everybody, as we move up the ranks, we need to know all different types of katas because it's so important. Just combat judo alone doesn't give you the complete circle of the rewarding fulfillment. So, but Rusty, after being with uh, the Kata group, she wanted more. She wanted the fight. Rusty was a, a scrapper from Brooklyn. She wanted to get up and fight. Finally, the international section said, okay, you can come to the men's side, but we treat you no differently. Fine. She embodied that mantra, fall down seven, get up eight. Because, oh boy, it was more like fall down 700, get up 800. They threw her. They really put her through the tests and she held her own. But she learned so much and she started gaining the respect of the Japanese male culture, which was monumental. Uh, she made some friends in uh, Japan and she made this one friend in particular. It's, it's funny because I hear stories, this one friend that she made, he went home and his father said, I see that they have a woman training on the do men's dojo side at the Kodokan. And he said, oh yeah, that's my friend. And he admitted that he was a little scared of her. Uh, his father said, I think you should marry her and she'll give you big, strong babies. So I call that man dad. Uh, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, this turns into a love story. Uh, then it turns into offspring, you. We're, we're going to find out how she ends up being uh, herself an accomplished karateka, a, uh, a championship fighter, and also somebody who fights uh, to keep America strong and the world safe uh, as a federal law enforcement officer. And, and there's, there's a lot more to this story. So uh, we'll be right back. Are you a leader of your organization looking for straightforward, data-driven business guidance? Then look no further than the Conference Board's new podcast series, CEO Perspectives. The Conference Board is a business think tank that provides trusted insights for what's ahead to the world's leading companies. Each episode features a 30-minute conversation by some of the Conference Board's noted subject matter experts, discussing a range of relevant business issues critical to CEOs right now such as the return to workplace, infrastructure spending, and where U.S.-China relations are headed, among other timely topics. You can find our new podcast series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We invite you to listen and subscribe to CEO Perspectives, brought to you by the Conference Board. We are back uh, where we left off. Uh, your your mother's in Japan. She's about to fall in love with with this guy who 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 knows she's no pushover when it comes to the dojo. Anyway, that's true. Well, they you know fast forward. They ended up marrying in 1964. Uh, he had the choice to go anywhere in the world, and he chose to, to teach judo, and he chose New York because when Rusty left Japan in uh, end of '62, he said he had to find her. And that's what he did. So he would write her letters 
and he chose to come to New York. He didn't speak pretty much. He didn't speak English except for maybe hello and thank you. But uh, he learned. And you said he's a samurai. He comes from samurai lineage. So just to give you an idea uh, for the older folks that might remember, if you remember the Samsonite luggage commercial where the karate guy came out and beat up the luggage doing karate uh, on the luggage, that's my dad. The name of the commercial is Kanakogi versus Samsonite. So that was in the late 80s. So that's my dad. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, and Bruce, you would probably remember, uh, he did a commercial called uh, For High Karate Aftershave. So if you could find that old commercial, he was chopping lemons, doing a karate chop uh, for lemons. So a little bit about my dad. Wow. Okay. Uh, so he's not, not, not only a martial artist, but also a, a bit of a TV star. He is. So, you know, fast forward, my, my mom had Olympic ambitions. She wanted women's judo into in the Olympics. She wanted equality. And she met so many challenges. She had to hold a world championships in order to even apply for women's judo to go into the Olympics. And of course, they, meaning the naysayers, said, yeah, go ahead, Rusty. Sure, you can hold a world championships. And just like she did on the street yard challenges, they said, well, where are you going to hold this world championships? And she said, well, I'll hold it at Madison Square Garden. So as these words were coming out of her mouth, she couldn't pull them back in. And of course, Rusty, you know, we're, we're middle-class people from Brooklyn. Like, how are you going to do this? She came back to our, our dojo in Brooklyn and she told everybody, well, we're going to hold a world championships at the garden. And my father looked at her and was like, um, we have $140 in the bank. How is this going to happen? Rusty pulled this off and held the first women's world championships at Madison Square Garden, which was an impetus to get women's judo into the Olympics. Fast forward from 1980, an eight-year battle. In 1988, Rusty walked into the Olympic Stadium in Seoul, Korea as the Olympic coach of the women's judo team for the United States. That's incredible. So 1988, which uh, uh, seems like a heartbeat ago, but gosh, I mean, that was now 33 years ago. And, you know, it was so bittersweet because I was so happy. I was one of the original signers of uh, human rights violation against women's judo, uh, that um, the Olympic Committee was discriminating against women's judo. Rusty had many, many lawsuits going. So I was actually one of the original signers. At that same time, I was up and coming. She had to sue to make this happen. Yes, she had to sue. Uh, I remember she had to sue. Now, Rusty barely had a high, she didn't even have a high school education. So she, but she had a street education and she had guts. She had grit. She had the guts, resilience, intestinal fortitude, the tenacity to get this done. And she could fight. Oh, and she can fight. Rusty was definitely not a pushover. Uh, so I'm growing up in, in these footsteps. I'm on the U.S. judo team. I started when I, well, I was nearly born on the mat. Uh, her judo, her, one of her students was her OBGYN. And uh, when she was in labor, he was actually practicing his kata form to test for his black belt. So they were literally in the room doing kata. She was choking him. He was arm barring her. And they were practicing judo as she was in labor to get him ready for his test. When did you start training? You started training in utero. Exactly. Uh, and then, of course, to get the attention of both of my parents, my father being a ninth degree black belt, uh, I had to go to judo and I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved the sport. I loved the family atmosphere. I apparently inherited from both of them and, and became pretty 
pretty good. I competed all over the world, representing the United States, meddling all over the world and getting uh, winning medals for the US. Uh, and when women's judo was in the Olympics, my Olympic shot was done because I blew out my knee right before. I continued to practice and compete for a few years after that, but it, it was just so difficult. And at that time, going to college and trying to transition. So I did end up transitioning and I found some place where I can make a difference. You see, Bruce, I measure my success by my significance. I don't, you know, I'm not a material successful person. How many people I can positively affect? How many people I can positively influence? Because I learned watching Rusty's story of resilience and empowerment, I learned how important it is to have relationships, how important it is to cultivate and really put the time and the effort into relationships and how to cut the dead weight and the dead wood, you know, stay away from those energy vampires. But if there's a possibility to help somebody, you absolutely do. I learned, don't just accept a morsel if you want the whole cookie and you feel and you believe that you fairly deserve the whole cookie, but don't insist on it when you don't deserve it. You have to put in the time. And and this is where I ended up. So here I am. I start my law enforcement career. I, I graduated John Jay College of Criminal Justice. But So before we get there, learning martial arts from a very, very young age, you learn, right, that you have to practice. You have to show up. You have to work hard in order to uh, to get the cookie. And John Jay uh, is a college in New York, for those who don't know. Uh, so you're still tr- you're training in New York. You're getting your education in New York. So is it like the 90s by now? It is. It is. It's it's uh, mid-90s by now. Uh, funny, one of the classes that I took at John Jay was my judo class taught by Rusty. So, And she made me work hard in that class in order, in order to get an A. But I ended up going into a career. I started, I took the test for NYPD and I also took a test. They, were, they had an outstanding scholar program for U.S. Customs. I got a call from both agencies in one day. So I called Rusty. I said, well, what do I do? All, a lot of my friends were NYPD. So I was thinking maybe I should just go, you know, go that route. I didn't know anything about federal. And Rusty said, go federal. I don't know why. I don't know how, but I would, she was my coach, my mentor, my best friend. So I'm like, okay, I'll go, I'll go federal. I had such a rewarding time uh, working at U.S. Customs, I got uh, I learned all about merchandise, and then I got on a team that specifically focused on drug inter- interdiction. I say I used to tell people, well, I did a lot of drugs in the late '90s because I was exposed to. I never even knew how many drugs there were and and what would try to come through our border. Granted, I understand also how the news highlights certain things, but the good that we were able to do on the teams that I was on to protect the borders from protecting a lot of these these terrible drugs. At the time, it was ecstasy that was co- trying to come through a lot. Ecstasy, cocaine, heroin. Uh, and I, I've never seen so much in my life. So working for this agency, it also allowed me to understand how the merchandise entering our borders affected the economy. It, w- it was really eye-opening and it was wonderful. I was in uniform. I, I just absolutely loved it. I felt like I wanted more. I wanted more of the investigation side. So I fast forward, I ended up being becoming a special agent. I became a special agent with the Inspector General for GSA. And then I started learning all about different ways that the government can p- protect, uh, that government agencies actually protect from fraud, waste, and abuse of the taxpayer money. So that was fantastic. Uh, what happened then 
is the attacks of September 11th. Yeah, so here you are, you're a federal law enforcement officer in New York and 9-11 happens. Yes. Uh, fast forward, I was uh, I ended up digging on that pile for about six months, uh, six to eight months while it was even still smoking. And that was by night. By day, we were all reassigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force and we would be following leads. We intercepted, and when I say we, I'm saying all the teams that work day and night, we intercepted a lot of potential future, I, I don't want to say attacks, but potential future disruptions because there was so much going on. You know, one of the things, Bruce, I like to focus on, aside from being being on that pile and, and digging in, in the horrific things that I had to endure and see, I want to focus on who we all became as a country on September 12th. Because that is something, if we could can it and, and open it again, it was amazing. There was so much unity. And I just want to uh, draw a bright line under what you're really saying, because here you are, a lifelong uh, fighter, a, the child of judo experts, and you're going into law enforcement. You're in federal law enforcement in New York City. And just to draw a bright light under this, by night, you're digging through the pie. Right. So this is the beginning of your dedicating your off-duty time as a volunteer. You're not just serving by day, but you also serve in your off time. And that was just the beginning. I know that's a theme in your career and your life. And I think you're right to remind people of how unified we were as a country. We were all pulling together. Everybody was a patriot that day and ready to pull together. That's so true. There, there are instances that I, I reflect. I remember driving down the West Side Highway. To my right were a bunch of trailers that people didn't realize were temporary morgues. To my left, people were lining the street, holding flags, waving flags, yelling, thank you, yelling, I love you. That was incredibly motivating because I was exhausted. We were all exhausted. Uh, and having that as we're entering the, the zone of ground zero to go back to work and to go continue working and, and digging and looking for la lost loved ones was just so incredible. Uh, a couple of times that through the night, I would sit down and a firefighter and a firefighter from New York City or, or from any volunteer agency would go back to back with me. And we actually fell asleep back to back on a street corner. And I woke up uh, and I had a, we both had a blanket on us and a hot cup of soup and a bottle of water and some crackers in front of us. Just woke up just like that. Someone had let somebody who was allowed in the Cordendorf area. It was one of the local churches. Uh, it, it was close to Chinatown. So it was um, one of the local Chinese churches. They left soup for any of us and they were giving out food and they were feeding us and they constructed areas that we can shower. Eventually, a uh, what we would call the Taj Mahal was built and uh, airlocks that we could shower, sit. There were chaplains available because at this point, we didn't know which end was up. We, we didn't know. I would run into friends and, and we would say, hey, have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? And we would just keep digging because we haven't been able to find some of our other friends, uh, law enforcement people. But one of the things, again, where you drew a line to highlight is how we became stronger together. Now, everybody should be able to have the opportunity to live here from whatever your beliefs are, whatever your religion is, but make it clear, we will not tolerate an attack. 
you cannot do this to us. We won't accept this. Or I can say for a fact, I will not accept you attacking us, but I will open my, my home, open my arms and welcome you. Right. Who we are, what we are, uh, is, is a free people who welcome others, who were built on welcoming others. And, and we, and we come together as Americans and defend, uh, defend the homeland and defend our, our way of life. And we all felt so, I mean, you know, the fact that people would see federal law enforcement officials, um, asleep, uh, from exhaustion and their response would be to recognize you as public servants and to leave soup and crackers for you because they were grateful because we're all in this together because we're all American patriots. And Bruce, 20 years later, here I am still healing from my emotional scars. Uh, I still have night terrors. I still see people and, and know of people that have died by 9-11 related matters, suicide and cancer being the two prevalent. And I decided this year I was going to speak publicly about September 11th. I have never done that before. So I spoke for uh, my town of Hunterdon County, New Jersey, as the speaker for a beautiful 9-11 remembrance ceremony. And it was beautiful because my intention was, if it was going to heal me, I'm sure my words were going to be healing for others. Part of emotional intelligence and part of understanding your, your emotions, I, I've heard you've got to name it to tame it, but I'm not an, a taming type of person. I say, you have to say it to slay it. If you can say it, then you can deal with it. And, and that's the whole thing, especially here we are, 2021, are we post-pandemic? Are we in the pandemic? Do we get a booster? Do we not get a booster? You know, if you're a scuba diver, I always say follow the bubbles because this way you know which end is up. We don't know where our bubbles are. So my mission as uh, I volunteer as the director of mental health and peer support for the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, what I want to do is I want to bridge the gap and smash the stigma about mental health and get law enforcement personnel, get first responders the mental health help that they need and get them the available peer support that they need. That's why I volunteer for this position, uh, all while uh, talking about the book and Rusty's story and working uh, still as an active agent. Service, service, service. And you're also certified uh, DHS uh, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center instructor. Yes. But bring it all together. How is the? How are the lessons of judo and the lessons uh, from your parents as fighters? Let me bring. Let me bring it home in a couple of the Japanese philosophies that apply to judo and to life. If you can abide by some of these philosophies, it'll not only get you through. It'll help you flourish. It'll help you find your way in sorts. Jitakyoe, the mutual benefit for all. That is why you bow into your opponent, because your opponent in judo is helping you learn better, helping you get stronger because you're stronger together. Serioko Zenyo, Serioko Zenyo, beautiful concept. Pretty much work smarter, not harder. That's it. And one more that I like to highlight, this is not part of judo, but it is part of a Japanese philosophy that so many people know. It's called kintsugi or kintsukuri. It's the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces back together with gold, built on the idea that embracing flaws and imperfection, you can create an even stronger and more beautiful piece of art because we're all broken in some way or another. 
So this 400-year-old technique highlights that scars are part of the design. So we use this metaphor to really teach us an important lesson to create something more unique, more beautiful, and more resilient. So we're all that broken bowl, but this part of the resilience is part of my journey, part of my scars, part of your scars are the paths to help heal yourself and people. And this is how I guide people to find their own internal get up and fight. This is how you carry Rusty Kanakogi's story of inspiration and empowerment. Uh, this is how you carry your message of resilience, the winning mindset. This is how you carry this into all of your philanthropic work, uh, into your motivational speaking. Uh, this is this is what you put in the book, right? Get up and fight. That's what the book is all about. That's what your, your motivational mission is about. Is this also... Um, are you able to bring this into your work as a law enforcement uh, official? I am. You know, communication, and uh, you mentioned earlier that I was an instructor at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and I taught in the Behavioral Science Division, largely depending on my teachings on communication, interviewing, rapport building. So yeah, at using this as a federal law enforcement officer, I can literally tell some, talk somebody into their handcuffs. So sometimes good people make bad choices and they have to be arrested. It's not, you know, anything against them. It's nothing personal. This is my job. And I will tell them, hey, listen, sorry we had to meet under these circumstances. You know, it's going to be a very difficult day, but I'm going to be here with you this whole time. There's no reason why you can't communicate. I mean, granted, of course, you know, you've, you've got to Mirandize them and make sure you don't go down a conversation path, but there's no reason why you couldn't use the gentle way mindset as you are arresting somebody, as you're doing a search warrant to really make it a win-win situation for all. Now, of course, officer safety is paramount. And the other thing I do is I'm part of the FLEOA 111 project, which is giving uh, martial arts skills to law enforcement so that they have another skill set in a use of force situation. So you're bringing this mindset into everything you do. Yes, you have to live a resilient life set lifestyle because what you put out in the air, what you put out in the universe, good will go with good, bad will go with bad. So if you have 15 things that went wrong that day and one thing that went right, if you can t take that neuroplasticity, change it up a little bit, focus on the one thing that went right, more things will start going right. Very good advice from Dr. Jean Kanakogi. Uh, she is a senior special agent for a U.S. law enforcement agency, and she is also the author of Get Up and Fight, the memoir of Rusty Kanakogi. She's the co-author with her mother of her mother's memoir. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce, and thanks everybody to listening. Next week, Bruce talks with Dr. Karen Gordon, author of The Three Chairs, How Great Leaders Drive Communication, Performance, and Engagement. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.